Hi, this is Katie. This is Philip. This is Chelsea. This is Lindsay. And this is Hanging with, with Microbies. Today's podcast is going to explore how scientists are using a new type of chromatography to study both the origins of human life on Earth, as well as the possibility of there being extraterrestrial life in our universe. A century ago, a meteorite landed in Australia. Its name was Murchison, and scientists have been really studying this, and they actually found organic molecules in this meteorite, and ever since then, they've been excited about the possibility that the building blocks of life may have actually originated in space. It sounds really interesting. I'm going to put you all on the spot. <laughs> I've been talking about this a lot, but do you guys know how old the universe is? Are we talking about since the Big Bang? 12 years. I'm going to guess. Four billion. So the universe is 14 billion years old. How old is Earth? That's Earth four is billion. four billion. Yeah, four oh. and a half billion years old. So, you know, just 500 million years off. You guys are pretty close. But, <laughs> you know, small numbers yeah. here. So because of this, over four and a half billion years ago, you know, our solar system was just dust and gas. Um, and it was surrounding what is now our sun. So a really young protostar is what they call it. And today, most of that gas and dust is in planets and satellites that are in our solar system and, of course, in the sun. So within this meteorite Murchison that we're talking about, they have found some of the building blocks of life. So they've found um, amino acids. And, of course, amino acids are used to make up proteins. Mm -hmm. And what do proteins do? Everything. Yeah, pretty much. Proteins do everything. They're used to build and repair our tissues, for instance. They make up like everything in our bodies, so proteins are important. They found some of the components of DNA as well in these meteorites. Um, Enough to sequence? That would be cool. I would think that it's not an actual sequence. Right. It was just the individual molecules rather than a sequence, because I'm the, sure that the first thing that they would do if there was an actual elongated DNA strand, they would sequence, sequence it, it immediately. Just the, how do they know that the source of the amino acids and what have you came from the meteorite and not? My guess without looking at anything is the fact that they burrowed into the meteorite right. rather than taking a sample uh, that surface, was on the yeah. surface. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah, that's... It's a really good question because they said why they like to study this meteorite specifically is because it's so large. So... It's a good point I hadn't considered. Yeah, but right? that's that's an interesting. Does that mean the meteorite itself was organic matter? And if not, how did the amino acids and the nucleodiodes get into the middle of the rock? To partially answer this question, basically these meteorites, which are really rare in terms of all the meteorites that come onto Earth, mm -hmm. are really carbon rich. Okay. Even if you were to dig down into to the soil, say five or 10 meters, you're going to find organisms that live within the soil. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that there's also organisms that live within meteorites. And so if you burrow down into it, you'll be able to, you know, if there is organic matter, that's where you would mm -hmm. find it. Although you probably could find it on the surface, but you're not going to know if it hasn't been contaminated by right. humans. Yeah. Or upon impact to earth. Yeah. yeah. Like picking up what it hits. Mm -hmm. Right. So we do protein purification in the building blocks of proteins. So amino acids were found in the meteorite. You know, coming with our backgrounds, how would we typically study proteins? You know, there's lots of different ways, but what's our favorite? I 
think chromatography would be a good place to <laughs> yeah. start. Well, I mean, you've got to separate out individual components from a mixture. Exactly. That's what chromatography does. Absolutely. So traditional techniques that they were using to study this meteorite um, were just involving inorganic or elemental composition. They've developed a new technology that's aiding them in this research. So exactly what you all were saying, chromatography, right? But they're doing nanoflow chromatography. So do you have any guesses for what nanoflow chromatography might be? Really, really low. Yeah. I was going to say, honey, I shrunk the kids. (laughs) (laughs) It's really tiny people that we shrink down running chromatography. Exactly. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So how are they able to get this type of like low flow? Is it pump driven or is it capillary driven? They're capillary sized columns. Great question. So, you know, we have medium pressure chromatography, we have low pressure chromatography, which basically is just larger volume systems, Mm -hmm. and then high pressure and ultra high pressure chromatography, which is smaller volumes, which create larger pressures. So this is a very, very small capillary column that they run slow flow rates through. And the reason why we have the smaller volumes My guess would be the fact that we're separating out a very small sample. Um, So you really want very high resolution. And so say it's different nucleo sides, nucleo bases. And so you're going to have to use something very, very small to be able to see the differences between one chemical compound to another. But that's a guess. Yeah. These meteorites are composed of such small concentrations and small amounts of these, let's say, I'm going to keep calling them building blocks. Part of the importance of the smaller volumes is that it's really sensitive. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the flow rate is of a of nanochromatography? Nanomills per minute? That would make sense, right? I was going to say I mean, nanoliters. Nano, nanoliters. Yeah. Nanoliters, yeah. yeah. So the nanoflow liquid chromatography basically, um, as chromatography does, it sorts the molecules, and then it uses a spectrometer to analyze each molecule to detect any of these potential amino acids. After you sort the molecules in the meteorite sample, they're applied to this nanoelectrospray ionization. So you're injecting off the column very small volumes, usually in an organic solvent. Uh-huh. The organic evaporates, and then the molecules of interest are ionized within the mass spec and then accelerated down the flight tube. Nice. To the detector. Yeah, which is a commonly used technology with yeah. chromatography, right? And the purpose of mass spec is to identify what those specific components of the sample are by their mass. Right. Mass to charge ratio, right? Yeah, like and that. you can do sort of quadrupole mass spec where you fragment up to the amino acid sequences. And from that, you Perfect. can build up the yeah. structure, molecular weight. Cool. Very cool. So have they done this on other meteorites, or is it all just based upon the one that struck Australia? I think they've done it on others. What they're saying is that they are trying to study more meteorites and also these things called IDPs, which are interplanetary dust particles. But I think primarily this Murchison one, because of its size Mm -hmm. being so large, is what they've studied. How big was the meteorite? I mean, it can't have been that big, because a big one's like an extinction event, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it's it's only going to be like a meter or less, I would think, by the time it gets to the ground. Right. It says that it was around 220 pounds. It's a pretty big meteorite. Yeah, Yeah. it's certainly heavy. Uh, So I had a quick question. Um, You talk about the... Uh, nanochromatography and then it's the way that they're introducing the sample into the mass spec but are they getting some type of trace or chromatogram before it actually goes into the mass spec so and if so like what are what's like the range or does it just separate out and then immediately go into the mass spec and that might be a question for philip since he used to work for a mass spec company 
I mean, with LCMS, MS usually is a detection okay. system. But didn't you say it was going into a spectrometer as well? Yeah. So, I mean, LCMS can be done different ways. They can mm-hmm. ensure that they're getting the separation. So uh-huh. before it's introduced into the mass spec by looking at the chromatogram, they could do online mass spec as well and just look at the mass charge ratios if they're confident that they have the separation between the components. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different kinds of mass spec. I mean, this one's very specific, what they've laid out, like the ESI LCMS. CMS. All right, you guys, I want to get a little sci-fi, like, you know, expand our thinking on this topic. One of the things that makes this technology so interesting and what these scientists at NASA are looking at is that this could give us a lot of different information, but specifically it could help explain how, you know, human life came to be on Earth. If we know it's some interstellar object and we're finding these amino acids, this could be proof that there's not necessarily intelligent, but life somewhere else outside our solar system or even inside of it. I think that there is still potential for there to be life on moons outside of both Jupiter and Saturn. Okay. Um, So they have recently... um, So do you guys remember the Voyager? There's Mm -hmm. two Voyagers that went out into space and they were able to get all kinds of really high resolution photographs of the moons around Jupiter and Saturn. And they believe that, um, I forget which moons, I think it's Europa, doesn't matter. The moons have the potential to actually have life on them because they think that there's water on one of the moons and then there's a lake of methanol on one of the moons around Saturn, I believe. So it's possible. Totally. Have you guys heard about this object that passed really close to Earth last year, I think? It was called Oumuamua, and they saw it through the um, observatory in Hawaii. The tumbling cigar. Yeah, exactly. What do you know about it? It's an interstellar object that's come from outside of our solar system and was traveling faster than the gravitational pull from the sun would something about either its trajectory (laughs) or its speed was not what was expected yeah so it was rotating and spinning exactly what you're saying based off of those gravitational fields and you asked a really good question about this the other day chelsea like about like how do they know it was in a gravitational pool within our solar system yeah so it could have been something that came from the oort cloud so the oort cloud is a a cloud of meteorites that surround the solar system Uh um and it is it takes one full light year for light from the sun to actually reach the Oort cloud. That's how far out it is. You're like a wealth of space knowledge. I, I did not watch, know about this. <laughs> I watch um, how the universe works a lot. In fact, I watched it yesterday. <laughs> I read that um, that they found out that it's it's spin it's spinning every eight hours. Huh. It, it sort of tumbles, it's, doesn't yeah, it? It's as tumbling, well, it's not... yeah. And then its brightness is changing. Um, by at least a factor of 10 as it spins every eight hours, its brightness changes. That's interesting. And it wasn't the shape they expected it to be. So, either, was it? Yeah. it was because because of that, because they because of the eight hour spin and the factor of 10 and brightness change, that, that made them come to the conclusion that it, the object was 10 times longer than it is wide to the cigar right. shape. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, too, that they thought it was, like, cigar shape, but it was actually, like, I didn't get to get the shape wrong, but, like, flat and, to your point, just spinning really fast, so they couldn't Mm -hmm. tell at first. Yeah, like a pancake, like Mm -hmm. you said. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, So, they think, because of the speed and the spin, that it was 
created or like thrown out by some violent explosion or is it a spaceship (gasps) there's a couple of scientists i think is it from harvard from harvard yeah who suggested that this could be some kind of like alien technology and like twitter got all out of control and up in arms over it (laughs) chelsea's giving me a look right now so is there an alien life form somewhere that's skipping stones across I Our like universe. that visual. That's a good one. Because you said it was flat and spinning. That's it. They're skipping stones. Just instead of like with money, you're like, They're here's like a seed it rain. for your planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, is it possible that some really um, advanced, intelligent life somewhere, if it exists, which is, you know, I'm just theorizing a little bit. Of course it, it does. <laughs> I'm with you there. But I, I understand everyone. It's, it's a right. fun thought process, mm-hmm. but is it not possible? everyone's right? So I have to say that I am very skeptical of there being intelligent life, but it is possible. What do you guys think? And we could talk about some pop culture references, but what do you think in terms of the idea that some advanced intelligent life somewhere else in the universe kind of is seeding or maybe they're not around anymore, but in the past seeded some meteorites with some of these building blocks of life and like shot them out. Like we dumped equipment out into space, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Mm -hmm. So maybe other blocks of life in other solar systems might be doing their equipment out too. Yeah. That's a great point. Cause don't we put seeds like on some of these crafts? One of them has Lego figures on, doesn't it? Wow. Yeah. One of the uh, counter arguments to this is that the levels that were found, you know, at Murchison, which is one of the bigger ones, were parts per million or parts per billion, which scientists have said um, isn't enough to jumpstart life, they don't think. Yeah. Where my point is, is, or what my opinion is, is that if life did originate somewhere else, which is completely possible, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that it was due to an intelligent life trying to seed planets multiple places. It's the fact that bacteria and, you know, small microbes can hitch a ride on meteorites and they've, you know, actually been able to, you know, or they have a theory, the fact that whenever life has been wiped out on earth, that whenever it starts again, it's because, you know, the meteorite that hit the earth and killed all the life here came back and it was hit again with uh, some of the exploded materials. And so we just keep reseeding ourselves with the same starting material. Some NASA scientists have actually said that they are guessing that interplanetary dust particles, so these IDPs that I mentioned way earlier, uh, may have provided higher amounts and a steadier supply of extraterrestrial organic material to Earth early on like while we were forming and we were that big ball of dust and gas. So that's one of the, you know, the other side of that argument a little bit. But to your point, I think there's endless possibilities probably. Yeah, um, definitely. things that we know now and possibly don't know. So these are great points. Something that immediately came to mind when I was researching this was Rendezvous with Rama, which is the Arthur C. Clarke book that I really like. But I'm just curious, there's so many instances of this type of... um, situation in pop culture like can you guys think of any what do you mean what situation like meteors carrying some material to a different planet that involve life no i was thinking of a star trek with the whole you know like the whole um what do they have like the united federation of planets and they ship their or they send this starship i'm completely star trek ignorant what what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) this united federation sent 
Enterprise off with Captain Kirk and his crew mm. into the interstellar what did you just space. mix intercellular it, and intercellular? Yes, yes, yes you did. <laughs> that was the best mistake. To boldly go. So they sent they sent <laughs> Captain Kirk and his crew off into the interstellar space with this with this ship to discover to other life forms. To boldly go huh. where no man has gone before. So what about War of the Worlds? <laughs> Because that the aliens were <clears throat> launching from Mars to come to here because their planet was dying. Oh, uh, not the movie, the book. That's a good the one. Movies so. sucked, but they were shooting their cylinders from Mars, and they were organic life forms within the yeah cigar-shaped cylinders. Yeah, just to add one more of these references, have you guys seen the movie Prometheus? No. no, no. Oh man, bummer. Okay, so basically, there's this race of engineers, and like many of the examples you all have brought up, they're sent to different planets. They drink this substance, which breaks down <gasps> their body, and their DNA enters the water, and it's like spread throughout, which I think is um, a cool, you know, kind of far out. It is kind of cool. Is yeah, it on Netflix? Visualization. It's one of the alien movies what happens to them once they're dissolved in the water hey, don't ruin the movie for me so basically they have this scene at the beginning of the movie with one of these engineers and the specific kind of engineer he is is called a gardener um they're sent to planets to sacrifice themselves so he drinks this black goo while standing on top of this waterfall and the goo instantly changes his dna destroys his body he falls into the water and dissolves and they kind of show suggest that his body and the dna from this gooey stuff results in life beginning to form on this new barren planet wow yeah (laughs) and he actually comes in on like i think they're like these very cigar shaped like objects that enter these different planets it's making me think more and more that that cigar shaped (laughs) inner uh planetary disc is a muamua it's a bad it's bad mojo What difference does it make if he drinks the goo and dissolves or just dies, dies and, and decomposes? decomposes. <laughs> it's super special expediting goo. <laughs> I don't know. It would be a really long movie otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So the probes that they sent up to Mars, the rover, because that does lots of tests while it's up there. What yeah, does they, that Does that have mass spec? Or? They have a GC on it. They have a GC. Mm-hmm. Um, in a spectrometer. I mean, that's incredible. It's amazing. Absolutely until it gets stuck. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even so. It's so cool that we can like send things out remotely to collect some of this data, you know, while it's there and, you know, bring it back, of course. But yeah. We're learning more about distant planets than we know about, say, our deepest oceans. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's... a great point, too. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Things that are down in the deep, we don't even, we don't really know. Nope. There's research that is ongoing about how to stop a, um, if there is something that's coming that would hit Earth and it's... So do you mean like using Bruce a Willis. laser beam to shoot it and vaporize it out of the sky to save no, the planet? It's Bruce like Willis. coming in? Back on the research, whether it would be, you know, actually, you don't want to blow the meteorite up like they do in Armageddon because it would just be multiple things that hit the Earth. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) What you want to do is divert its path. And whether you use either, um, like, they have tossed around, like, using nuclear warheads. But rather than that, actually using solar sails. 
So putting sails, like parasails, on the meteorite so that it catches the solar wind, and that's what they use to divert. Whoa. I mean, it's all research right now because we haven't had to use it, but it's just something interesting that I thought was So with the Oumuamua, um, they were saying that um, it's not it's not really a comet, it's not really an asteroid, um, and they were trying to figure out um, like what the what the factor was that was triggering um, like the force behind driving this um, this object through space, and um, there was a part where they were thinking that um, the force that was pushing it was um, possibly uh, light from the sun huh. that as the the as it the light from the sun bounces off the surface of the object it kind of gives it a little push like what you were saying with wind sails because um, wind bouncing off the sail of a sailboat is you know pushes that that's cool um, so the solar the solar winds are what like a flare solar yeah. flares that it's called yeah so but then when they did the math, they realized that this object had to be less than a millimeter thick um, if it was to be pushed by sunlight. Um, so they, they didn't think that that would be, you know, that wasn't the size of it. So they're think, so now they're kind of thinking that the force behind it is, is something that's not natural, that it has to be artificial because it, um, wow. because they can't, they can't find how it's, what's driving it. Because mm-hmm. yeah. there's no vapor trail like you get from the ice on comets. Right, there's no, there? yeah, there's no vapor coming off of it or anything, yeah. The question I wanted to ask is, if you had the opportunity to go and colonize another planet in your lifetime, would you? Who with? What? Who, whoever Who you want to go with. By yourself or with somebody? Oh. Could I take my bike? <laughs> kind of just like bounce along yeah exactly like, depending on the air gravity could you get? <laughs> yeah if there's less gravity you might be able to really send it you know seriously yeah. shred the gnar shred that martian gnar <laughs> yes i think i probably would yeah i wouldn't want to be the first one but yes how about you Lindsay? well you have to decide now i have to you decide can't right change now. your mind ever <laughs> no, the bus is outside waiting I would probably, I guess I would probably say no, because I, it's good to have variety in in the galaxy and whatever other galaxies are out there. And I would say no, not to take our species and go colonize again another place. Mm-hmm. Um, I would let that place just kind of naturally evolve, just like how we may have naturally evolved here on Earth. Okay, Chels. All right. You ready for this? I'm so ready. (laughs) No. Hands down, no. Okay. Not only, even if we could instantaneously transport, which is not realistic. Right. um, Because travel faster than the speed of light is not possible. Um, Yet. Yeah, you get seasick. You'd probably get space sick. I definitely would be space sick. (laughs) But mainly because we haven't done a good job of taking care of the Earth here. And I don't think that it's right that we go and we destroy another planet. Our species is not, at least in my opinion, we haven't taken care of things here. And until we do that, I don't think it's right for us. Like we shouldn't, until we can take care of what we've been given, we shouldn't, we don't have the right to go somewhere else. But that's... No, those are interesting points. Very holistic, you know, trying to just, you know, let's take care of what we have and not try and spread. Even though I know that us as a species will not be able to be around forever, I don't think it's, I just don't think it's right. Hmm. 
What about you? What's your thought? I absolutely would. As long as I could bring Nate and my cats, I'd be there in a jiff. <laughs> <laughs> and if they made uh, astronaut beer. <laughs> that okay. being said, I do like watching the movies about people traveling to other, <laughs> yeah, other, totally. other <laughs> planetary destinations. Yeah. So there are definitely critics that are wondering if this research, you know, looking at these meteorites using chromatography is worth the time. But what I've really gained from our discussion today and reading about this topic is that our solar system isn't isolated. It just really brings home that point for me. We're part of like a much larger environment and we might be in close proximity. Maybe this is controversial to some interstellar visitors without even knowing it. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, as technology advances and we use tools such as chromatography, always, of course, we expect to see a clearer picture of how humans came to be on Earth and where extraterrestrial life might exist in our universe. So thanks for getting a little sci-fi with us here today and listening in. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on bioradiations.com. And as always, thanks for hanging with us. This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.